A very good morning to you. It's great to see you all here this morning. You are very, very welcome. If you're new or visiting, uh, as Alice said, please do go and chat to someone from the welcome team. Uh, we'd love to help connect you with the body of Christ, whether that's here or wherever it is the Lord is calling you to. I won't say anything about the heating. Um, apparently, it was tested. On, I'm just passing on information. I can't, I can't vouch for the veracity of the information I'm passing on. It is just the information that has been given to us. So apparently, it was tested on Friday. And not that we've heard this before, but apparently, this is our last cold Sunday. <laughs> I am speaking on others' behalf. Um, please don't hold me to that, but um, do cry out to the Lord for a remedy or a heat wave or mercy or something. Um, but God bless you all for being here in the, um, in the challenge and the suffering of it all. It's probably leading to holiness or something somewhere. I don't know how. But still, if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, the words will miraculously appear on the screen behind you. This is Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in, uh, the, in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law both day and night. And that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do uh, prospers. I just want you to keep verse 2 in mind uh, as I chat this morning. Uh, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law both day and night. Last week we began a series looking at the old Testament, as we try to navigate our way through this ancient text to see how our reading of the Old Testament might help us as we focus on all the things that uh, we looked at at the beginning of the year of Matthew chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 28. And alongside looking at some of the ways uh, we might perhaps be approaching, you know, the Old Testament, uh, seeing it as some kind of biography of so-called heroes of the faith that we touched on last week or some kind of theological textbook or a treasure trove of verses to help us when we're down. Uh, last week, we also reached the conclusion, conclusion that Jesus and indeed the apostles all place great importance on the text that we now call the Old Testament. Uh, we also touched on the idea last week that the whole of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments are essentially this one unified story that is all leading to Jesus. And so the challenge is, how are we to engage with these texts that are meant to shape our view of reality as followers of Jesus, as we deepen our love for God and our love for one another? How are we to actually read this collection of books that are meant to form us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus? How are we to meditate both day and night on these scriptures that are meant to connect us uh, in a real and living way to a real person, an actual person, Jesus? 
The challenge is, uh, I think, you know, if we don't have the tools to approach it in the right way, we're not only likely to end up making the Bible say and do things that it probably wasn't designed or intended to do, but also we're much more likely to miss out on what it is that those texts are actually designed to accomplish. And that is this narrative, this telling, this unified story all leading to Jesus. I stumbled across uh, what I found to be a fascinating program on Radio 4 the other day uh, called How to Read the News. And uh, it's a series, only short little episodes and stuff, but it's, it's, uh, it's a series ex examining how our perception of the news is essentially shaped by those who are presenting it, which kind of makes sense. And what they're trying to do in this program is they're trying to give us the tools, if you like, to learn how to decode the news, to get to the nub of uh, real events and uh, current affairs. And the first episode I listened to uh, was called Have You Read Paragraph 8? And, uh, and in that episode, what they do is they unpack a journalistic device about how news, structure, uh, news stories are structured uh, and the impact that this has on the way that we understand them. And apparently it's called the inverted pyramid. And this uh, would be for us, whether we realize it or not, a really familiar device where we get the, the what, if you like, of a news story uh, before the why. Uh, very often with most of the context and the content somewhere buried down in paragraph eight. The problem is, uh, for most of us, if we're honest, we, we never get round to reading paragraph eight. Journalists very rarely, if ever, present us with like a chronological order of events. What they do is they give us what they perceive to be the most important bits of information first. And so, you know, the way that we've learned since like primary school about how to tell a story, you know, you begin at the beginning and you end at the end, is most often not how journalists present the news to us. They'll tend to ask, like, the question apparently, um, like, does it pass the pub test? And so the pub test would be something like, you know, you meet your friends uh, down the pub after work and you say, you never guess what happened. Uh, a man got hit by uh, a tram uh, today outside uh, the office. Uh, or whatever, whatever it is. You're not likely to start with a fine drizzle was settling on the pavements of London as Joe began his daily commute, little realizing how his day would end. It would seem that style of reporting, um, of using this inverted pyramid, where the narrative gives us what the journalist has decided are the most important facts first, Apparently, this is a relatively recent uh, narrative style, dates back to the American Civil War, when reporters were sending through their updates through the newfangled invention of the telegraph, and because it was expensive and because it was completely unreliable, uh, they would put the most important information first, just in case the whole thing cut out, or they couldn't afford to send it. Now, the danger is, if our news is presented to us in headlines or in, in, in sound bites, if we don't take the time to read beyond the headline, right down to paragraph eight and beyond, which, again, many of us don't have the time to do, our understanding of the story will be uh, potentially significantly compromised. This does have some you know, relevance to what I'm trying to say this morning. What if, just like you know, how to read the news, that program is trying to give us tools as to how to decode the news, what if we needed some tools to decode, to decode 
the Old Testament. Do we need to perhaps be reading and engaging with the Old Testament in a slightly different way to the way in which we might read a newspaper or a 20th century novel, as an example? You know, an, ex an enormous amount of the Old Testament is in narrative form. Biblical narrative makes up like two-thirds of the Bible. You know, we might think of the Bible as a kind of history. The Old Testament is a kind of history, telling us all the stuff that has happened, you know, with a bit of poetry sort of thrown in around the Psalms and stuff. But is that all that's going on? Are we just being told about interesting or important events or things that happened? Or might these ancient texts actually be telling us something more than that? What if it were doing something more than just giving us an account of what happened? Something like working two goals together at the same time and telling them forwards as well as backwards. And one of those things might indeed be the recounting of the history and the story of Israel, you know, the stuff that happened. But at the same time, perhaps the Old Testament is also offering an interpretation to us to help us see the meaning of what happened. You know, if you take the book of Kings, the two books of Kings as an example, when the, when the writers are telling us the story of like a king, time and time again in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, they'll say, uh, as for the other events of so-and-so's reign, you know, Jeroboam's reign or Rehoboam's reign or somebody Boam's reign, it will say, as for the other events of so-and-so's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel or Judah or whichever one they happen to be a king of? And what that's telling us is that the writer is sort of working like a modern-day journalist, is selectively using material uh, from different sources, the annals, and arranging it according to some intentional design purpose and according to some line of thought. So rather than just being a factual account of history, the Book of Kings, for an example, is also very importantly an evaluation of the monarchy at that time. It's telling us a lot about the monarchy. And it's a pretty negative evaluation uh, from the start. So alongside all of the history that we're getting through the Old Testament, we're also getting this like, kind of prophetic revelation, this prophetic insight, this meaning, this interpretation of everything that's going on. The writers are doing much more than just telling us like a historical account. They're telling us what it all means and how a particular event fits into a chain of events that both goes back to what's gone before and points ahead to what is yet to come. All of which is great, but it also makes reading this, the book, the Old Testament, really tricky. It makes it really, really challenging. We don't feel really necessarily skilled or equipped to read things this way. It's not our natural way of engaging with narrative. These are things that we actually need to learn. When I was at school, uh, amongst other things, we were set uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, 14th century Middle English. I, I, I think I was like 12 at the time. I, I don't know what I'd done wrong in a previous incarnation. Uh, most of the time, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. But I had this, uh, not that it helped, but I had this English teacher who prided himself on his ability to read to us out loud in Middle English, which he did at every opportunity, even when we weren't studying Chaucer, um, which was interesting. 
And then we moved on to sort of Beowulf and Shakespeare, and then to mix it all up, we started to learn the language of the poets, and so we looked at Keats and Yeats and depressed ourselves, you know, on Sylvia Plath. Why you would ever get 15-year-olds or whatever to study Sylvia Plath is beyond me. Uh, meanwhile, in German, I was having to kind of learn to read uh, Goethe in high German and get my head round uh, Sturm und Drang, and then in French, I was trying to tease my way through French existentialism and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. What I'm trying to say is none of those things made any sense to me at all at the time. I knew nothing of Middle English. I knew nothing of iambic pentameter. I knew nothing about existential French philosophy. All of those devices I needed to learn before I even stood a chance at comprehending what the writers were trying to say. You know, we've all had that experience, whether that's, you know, in the language of maths or science or computers or art or music. At some point, we have to familiarize, familiarize ourselves with the devices of the writers and the composers and the artists so that we can fully begin to appreciate what it is we're actually experiencing. And I think it's the same with the Old Testament. Is it any wonder that many of us struggle with the Old Testament? It's a bit like settling down one evening, you know, just to read Spencer's Fairy Queen or, you know, looking at a Jackson Pollock for the first time or listening to, you know, I don't know, Wagner's Ring Cycle or Schoenberg or something. It's like, this feels dense. This feels impenetrable. Sometimes we've just not been given the tools to properly interpret what it is that's in front of us. So, if we're coming to the Old Testament thinking that we're reading today's newspaper or a 20th, 20th century novel, we're likely to be in for a little bit of a surprise. So, what might be some tools, if you like, that might be able to help us? Well, the first is this, and it kind of follows on from what we were talking about last week. Have a look back to Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 25. This is Jesus, this is after the resurrection, Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is um, 24, starting 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now go down to verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day, uh, on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Just go back to verse 45. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. This is the first and most important thing to us in trying to comprehend the scriptures, the person of Jesus. Jesus is walking along the road, you know, there's clear pass, there's another disciple, and they don't recognize him. They can't see him for who he is. And yet when they sit down and they, they break bread together, Jesus effectively reenacting the Last Supper, suddenly their eyes are opened and they recognize him. 
When it comes to us understanding the Scriptures, we need Jesus. Uh, we need His Holy Spirit to open our minds so that we can understand the Scriptures. You know, these are not just words on a page. These are the words of life. Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the wor Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is no ordinary book, and it's going to require some spiritual revelation, some divine intervention, if we're even going to begin to get our heads around it. Fortunately, help is at hand. As uh, Jesus says in Luke 24, speaking of the coming Holy Spirit, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, that stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So first and foremost, above and beyond everything else, we need Jesus. We need the Spirit of God to fill us and equip us and empower us to read and understand his words. And just as Jesus has promised on so many occasions throughout the scriptures, all we need to do is ask. All we need to do is ask. And so every time we come to open the Scriptures, whether that's at the start of our day or the end of our day or in the middle of our day or anywhere in between, before we read a word, let's get into the practice of inviting the Spirit of God to come, to ask God to open our minds so that we might understand the Scriptures. So that's the first thing. That's by far the most important thing. A second thing um, we might want to ask ourselves when we're reading the Old Testament is, what is it that we're reading? Like, what, what is it that we're reading? Um, here are two representations of the night sky, I think, maybe. Uh, no, go to the one with the two side by side. Is that, does that, yeah, there you go. Two representations of the night sky. Uh, one is uh, The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Gogh, 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 Gogh. Uh, the other is a photograph, it's from the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, here's a really stupid question. Uh, are either of these the night sky? No. Well, you know, what are we, what are we looking at? You know, we're, we're looking at a screen, we're looking at um, a 2D image, you know, it's just pixels on a screen. That's what we're looking at. This certainly isn't, you know, the night sky. What we're looking at are really like two representations, representations of the night sky. You know, the only way we can ever see the night sky is by actually looking at it. And even then, when we look at the night sky, we're only ever going to get our perspective from our unique position through our own, uh, through our own eyes. And this is a space, I think, that an honest reading of the, Holy, uh, the, the Scriptures is um, inviting us into. You, know, you look at the image from the Hubble telescope, and I guess it's using sort of maximum realization in its representation. I, I mean, I, my assumption is, I haven't seen it like in real life, but my assumption is that's accurate, I guess. But it could be argued that like Van Gogh's painting actually evokes something in our um, emotions that creates for us like this far more poignant and impactful, meaningful impression of the night sky. Hence, Impressionism. 
And it does things really that, you know, for many of us that the Hubble space photograph can't do. The point is, I guess, that both these images communicate different things, but they're both interpretations of the same thing. They're both interpretations of the night sky. So, when we're reading the Old Testament, on the one hand, we're being given this account of events that took place, but at the same time, simultaneously, we're being presented with an interpretation you know, of the meaning of those events. When we're reading the Old Testament, yes, absolutely, we're reading words on a page, but all of those words on a page are painting this visual narrative description. And what those biblical narratives are doing is that they're inviting us into their world to see things from their point of view. And what those narratives do, and why this is no ordinary book, is that they just work on us somehow. I mean, that's one, part of the wonderful mystery of this book, because they work on us often in very subtle and, and indirect ways. Because over time, again, in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus, they start to impact our view of ourselves. And they start to impact our view of the world in which we find ourselves until we emerge from these narratives, seeing things a little bit differently, loving God more and loving others more. And we don't really know quite how it happened. What we're not doing when we're reading the Old Testament is we're not being put in a time capsule and watching security camera footage of those ancient events, if that makes sense. Let me try and finish off with an example of what I mean before I lose you all completely. Um, let's talk about Noah and the flood from Genesis chapter 6 uh, to 9, one of the more famous, one of the more controversial texts. And as you'll know, uh, this story essentially centers around a, a global cataclysmic flood and a floating zoo, right? That's Noah's Ark in a nutshell. Now, until more recently, most Christians assumed this story refers to an actual worldwide event that took place in the, in the relatively recent past. But, you know, thanks to modern-day science, as well as, you know, an explosion in the discovery of uh, the ancient world of the Bible, there's questions have been raised as to whether this interpretation is actually the best reading of the, of the text. And, and, and that's been pretty much decisively challenged. And, and that's been challenged as well by, you know, the work of many Christian uh, scholars and scientists who were and who continue to be guided by the belief that all truth is God's truth, that all scripture is inspired and that the testimony of God's creation shouldn't be ignored. But the, the scientific and historical evidence is clear. There, there's never been a global flood. There's never been a global flood that covered the entire earth. Nor would it seem that um, all modern animals and humans are descended from the passengers of this single vessel. So now what do we do? It's like, oh, dear. Well, I guess when uh, discoveries in God's world conflict with our interpretation of God's word, there are probably three things, I don't know, three things, you might be able to think of more, three things I reckon that we can do. So the first thing that we can do is we can abandon our faith uh, in order to accept, you know, the findings of science. That's one option. 
A second option might be that we just ignore the scientific evidence and just keep holding on to our interpretation of scripture. That's quite popular in churches. Um, or the third option is that perhaps we need to reconsider our interpretation of scripture in light of evidence from God's creation. Uh, by definition, most Christians reject option one, which is good. Option two has a pretty terrible um, historical track record. Uh, you know, and a whole bunch of uh, prominent histor historical kind of theologians have urged Christians not to ignore or dismiss the findings of science. And so option three would seem to represent the best way forward for us all, which is around reconsidering our interpretation of the scriptures. Because history has given us actually many examples of where our knowledge of the natural world has helped correct our faulty assumptions or interpretations about the scriptures. You know, just think Copernicus and Galileo as examples. So, if the story of the flood, I don't think this is heresy, by the way. Um, it could be. Just tell me, just write me an email afterwards. Um, you need to find out for yourselves. Um, if the story of the flood isn't describing a whole of the world as we know it now flood, and that maybe the animals, sorry to break it to you, maybe the animals didn't actually go in two by two after all, which is devastating, I know. Like, if, if that's not true, like, what is it then? Well, you know, if we go back to our kind of Van Gogh and Hubble photograph examples, um, perhaps it's an impression of something that actually has far more significance than how many animals and how much water. Scholars, you know, agree that the Genesis flood account actually like, contains all of these literary clues that its writers um, weren't intending to narrate an actual series of events. The story uses hyperbole throughout. Uh, it describes this massive arc, you know, which holds uh, representatives of every living creature on earth and a flood which flows over the tops of the highest mountains in the world. Now, these literary devices, they, they weren't necessarily there, they weren't meant to get the hearers to then work out the practical feasibility of those descriptions. Rather, they're just sort of important clues that we're dealing with a cosmic, you know, um, theological story. We're not dealing with ancient journalism. It's back to our uh, video security footage idea. And biblical scholars almost universally see these chapters as having a, a, a totally different purpose to the rest of the book of Genesis. These are primeval narratives and they are covering like a huge swathe of cosmic history. And as such, they are highly figurative in their language. They're written to serve like as the grand poetic overture, if you like, to the story of God's people all of which begins in Genesis with, with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. And this is really important. While they speak of real events, you know, such as the creation of the universe and the special call of God on humanity, 
they're doing it in rhetorical ways that have got far more to do with the purpose of the story than merely a plain narration of the facts and the detail and the events of the story. And this, as I said, is completely typical of how ancient people apparently, including the Israelites, wrote their historical accounts. And that's especially true when it's concerning those things that might be called primeval events, you know, that relate from the beginning of history. The trouble is, just for starters, when we're reading the flood narrative, we're doing it with a completely different understanding of the nature and the shape of the earth. So when we read global, we think global like the whole world as it is now, like in our understanding of global. But that's us being in danger of imposing something on the text that was never supposed to be there because the original audience had no idea that the earth was a globe, let alone how big it was. And the same would go for all of our questions around, you know, water sources, water supplies, the buoyancy of the ark, geological impact, um, post-flood animal migrations, and any of the other detailed questions that we might have around the logistics of this, the veracity of the story, all of which are simply missing the point of the story. At its core, the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood, it's an inspired um, and powerful message, I believe, uh, about judgment and about grace. And it's a story that's informed and shaped God's people throughout the ages. And it's about God's hatred of sin on the one hand, and it's about God's love for creation on the other. Most importantly, I think what we see in the story is God's promise to never destroy the earth again, however big the earth is at the time. A, a promise that is made, that is pointing forwards, and which is fully realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus, where God takes the judgment for sin upon and into himself, rather than out on humanity. And so, through the lens of Jesus, the biblical story of the flood actually proclaims the good news. It's pointing ahead to the coming of Jesus. It's, it's, it's referring to God's grace and God's love for his people. You know, and just because it may not mean everything that we thought it might mean, it doesn't mean to say that it's made up or that it didn't happen. It, it just means that maybe we haven't been reading it right. And that's just going to take some readjustment on our part. Uh, next week, <laughs> uh, we'll dig into this a little bit more and we will um, try and tackle Jonah. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I do it to myself. I really, really don't. I bring it on. So next week is Jonah. <laughs> um, it was either a toss-up between Jonah and the Nephilim. Couldn't quite work out which one. Um, so I opted for Jonah. Uh, it's only four chapters. Uh, so give it a read this week. Um, and see what you think it's really about. Like, what, what do you think is actually going on there? Don't just read, you know, don't get your children's Bible off the shelf. Um, actually read Jonah. Um, because often 
the Bible version of Jonah is slightly different to the, the children's version of Jonah. Um, have a look at that, um, and we will see what you think it's about uh, as we together try to probe um, our interpretation of the Old Testament and how we get along with this thing. Just want to end again with um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates both day and night. That person's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. We encourage you um, as we journey on this together. Spend some time in the Old Testament this week. Spend some time just meditating on God's word, day and night preferably, but just whenever you can, even if it's just for five minutes. And just as you sit down, as you, as you come to God's word, can I encourage you to just invite his presence to come. Invite the spirit of God to come. Invite Jesus to come and to open your eyes, open your understanding of the scriptures. Uh, why don't you stand? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.